Now we can turn um, in the Bibles in your pew to page 308. Our Bible reading is from 2 Kings 2, 6 through 14. If you don't own a Bible, we really would love for you to take this one home uh, with you so you can have one. 2 Kings 2, 6 through 14. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other, until the two of them could walk over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes, tore them into two pieces. He took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back, stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Holly, for reading God's Word for us. Uh, Good morning. My name is Paul Brandis, and I serve here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community as the associate pastor. I'm so glad that you uh, have joined us this morning. And uh, as we begin uh, to open God's Word and uh, see what He might have for us um, from 2 Kings uh, 2, I believe that we need God's help to understand uh, His Word. And so I'd ask you to uh, join me in a word of prayer for a blessing upon our time. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you have spoke and you are still speaking today. I pray, Father, as we examine what it says in 2 Kings 2, that uh, you would speak through me and I would decrease as you increase, Lord, and that we would uh, know truly um, that you are still, uh, no matter what, with us. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, back when I was in fourth or fifth grade, I had one of those nights where no matter what, you can't get to sleep. Tossing, turning, mind churning. And I don't remember what caused that night, uh, but I do remember the thought that my mind finally settled upon. I didn't choose the thought. I don't feel like you ever do choose the thought that your mind settles upon on those sleepless nights. But for some reason, I could not get the thought out of my head of my dad dying. And I think it must have been the first time that I had really ever settled on the eventual inevitability of that, that no matter what, no matter how long he lived, at some point my dad was going to pass away and, and no longer be with me. And as the weight of that, as I dwelled in that space, the weight of that settled upon me and I grew sadder and sadder. Eventually, I started crying and I even had to leave bed and go be comforted by my bewildered father who at that time was in his late 30s in perfect health. What's going on here? I'm fine. I'm not going anywhere. 
And as a 10 or 11-year-old, I obviously knew about death. I knew at an intellectual, conceptual level that at a, at a, at, at, I knew that this life eventually ends for everyone, full stop. But the weight of that had not struck me yet before. And even though our eventual ends for other people hit me that night, it wasn't until later, a few years later, in high school, that I started to really wrestle with this question. How will I end? How will I end? Yes, it's a morbid question, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. I'm not sure that most high schoolers even wrestle with this. I got in a really serious car accident my junior year of high school, and I think that's more than anything what brought me to this question. But I really don't think you're ever too young. Ever too young to really wrestle with the big questions of life. Not just how will I end, but all of the tentacles attached. How will it have all been worth it? How much will I have added, wasted? Will my family still love me? What regrets will haunt me? What will define me? Everyone ends. You, me, and even Ahab and Jezebel too. This morning we're finishing up our sermon series called With Us in the book of 1 Kings. We've spent the last eight weeks looking at the intertwining stories of evil King Ahab, his worst wife Jezebel, and God's prophet, Elijah. And last Sunday, Pastor Bill covered the end of Ahab and Jezebel. It was not pretty. They both were torn apart by a pack of wild dogs. Yuck. But this was God's just judgment. Ahab and Jezebel had led God's people astray. Child sacrifice, ritual prostitution, overwhelming oppression. And then they murdered Naboth, one of the only good guys left, all because Ahab wanted a little bit of a vegetable garden in his backyard. We've said it over and over again these past months, and not just their stories, but the author of 1 Kings makes explicitly clear that Ahab and Jezebel were the literal worst, and so they fell under God's judgment. They met their end. And now today we come to Elijah's end. Elijah was God's man. He despaired at times, but he remained faithful, like Naboth, one of the good guys. How will his story end? Well, the answer to that question is found in 2 Kings chapter 2. Holly read a portion of that chapter for us just a few minutes ago. Let's look again at that chapter, this time starting in verse 1, whether in the Pew Bible or on your phones. Look back at verse 1. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind... Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Now, admittedly, the beginning of verse 1 is a bit of a spoiler, but this is classic Old Testament narrative telling. You lay out the whole story right in the beginning so the readers know what's going to happen, and then you dive right in. So we as the readers know that Elijah's end, oddly, will not come by death, but through being taken up in a whirlwind. And he and his successor, Elisha, have embarked upon this strange journey together. And at each stop in the journey, Elijah turns to Elisha and urges him to stay behind. And the story doesn't explicitly tell us why he does this. It could be some sort of final test of faithfulness. Elisha is the successor to Elijah's ministry, but he has to stick with him all the way to the end, maybe that kind of thing. Whatever the reason, as you heard read, Elisha flatly refuses Elijah's request time and again. So they journey together from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan River. 
And like the story doesn't tell us why Elijah keeps trying to push Elisha away, it also doesn't tell us why they're on this journey. It doesn't reveal that. And, and as we read it today in 21st century Kansas City, it all seems a bit random. Like, what's going on here and where are they going and what's the point of it? But what we have to understand is that these locations, Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, the Jordan, they were all deeply significant in connection with Israel's original arrival into the land under Joshua. Joshua was the leader of God's people after Moses. God's people, the Israelites, are enslaved in Egypt. Moses, uh, God through Moses, delivers the people, and now they sit after 40 years of wandering on the cusp of the promised land. And God's plan had been to use Joshua and the people of Israel at that time uh, to judge the land that they were about to enter into, the, the uh, overwhelmingly wicked people that lived in these locations, that lived in these cities. That was God's plan, to use his people for that purpose. But God's people fell short. They didn't complete the job. They didn't root out the, uh, the, the rampant idol worship that was, had existed in the promised land at that time. And so, generations later, as of course would happen, they fell prey to the lure of idol worship. So instead of these cities, which are supposed to be, are designed to be full of Yahweh worshipers, if God's people had lived up to God's plan, these are still pagan strongholds of Baal worshipers. And so this is a deeply tragic and ironic journey that Elijah is taking Elijah on. It's, it's what could have been, if only. And at each stop as they journey, the sons of the prophets come out to see Elijah and Elisha. And twice in verses 3 and 5, they ask Elisha about his master. Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And Elisha responded, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And this is so interesting. Because think about it. Everyone now in the story knows how Elijah will end. The narrator knows. He's already told us back in verse 1. The sons of the prophets, they know. They ask Elisha about it. He says, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And in verse 9, we find out from Elijah himself that he also knows how he will end. And there's a strangeness to this. There's an oddity. I have to figure the only reason everyone knows what's going to happen is because God must have told them. That's not explicitly on the page in 2 Kings 2, but it's the only answer that makes any sense. And that leads us, the fact that God revealed Elijah's end, that brings us to our first observation in the story this morning. And hopefully these observations that we cover from Elijah's story about his end will help us to better prepare to deal with our own ends. The first observation is this, God knows, God knows how and when it's going to end. God knows how and when it's going to end for all of us. I don't, you don't, but someone does. Now, maybe that scares you, but for me, I actually find it comforting, comforting that, that isn't, this isn't all just some sort of random roll of the dice. You know, nobody shows up in paradise unannounced, a surprise to God. Wait a second, what are you doing here? What bear? I didn't know about any bear. Doesn't happen like that. I could die 50 years or 50 seconds, hopefully not for your sake, I don't know who would finish the sermon, but 50 years or 50 seconds from now and neither one of those would surprise God. 
Job, an Old Testament character who was faced with more death than any of us, he said this, you have decided in prayer to God, he says, you have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live and we are not given a minute longer. It reminds me of the Pulitzer Prize winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See, set in World War II. At one point, the narrator describes a soldier how he would have become this excellent, amazing barber if he had not been scheduled to die on the beaches of Normandy. Imagine that. Somewhere on some divine schedule book, I have an appointment with death for which I can arrive neither early nor late. Or in The Book Thief, a fascinating novel about death, the famous quote, Here's a small fact. You are going to die. Does this worry you? And it's like, yeah, of course it does. <laughs> so let me ask you, us, this morning, are we living with our ends in mind? Our priorities, our decisions, our relationships, are we living knowing that the clock is ticking? Or are we denying it? Because isn't that what so many of us do? We know the end's coming, but don't we sort of functionally deny it, push it off, don't consider it, and what it means? I just started watching the Netflix original series, Bloodline. It's a family drama set in the Florida Keys. It's not for the faint of heart, I'll say that. I've described it as parenthood with murder. That's good. You guys thought that was funnier than first service. But there's this scene that's really gripping. It's between the matriarch and patriarch of the family, Robert and Sally Rayburn. Robert's just had this really serious seizure, but he's been given this clean bill of health and he's discharged from the hospital. They're in their kitchen and he's trying to talk to his wife about their will, about what will happen after he ends, after he's gone. But she keeps turning him down over and over. You're not going anywhere, she says. What do we have to talk about? And then she walks out. Two episodes later, she finds him sprawled in their backyard. He's collapsed and this time died from another seizure. Gone. His end. Denying our ends is foolish. Maybe you're denying your end because you're young, invincible in your mind. I know I did that. Or maybe because you've always been healthy. Or maybe because people in your family live a long time. Or maybe you're denying your end because, you, frankly, you just find it too difficult to consider. The psalmist, actually Moses, who wrote a psalm, he prays, Psalm 90, and I pray this often. He wrote, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If you want to live a wise life, a good life, number your days. Remember that they will end. Don't deny it. And along that journey, trust that God knows how and when. Back to the story. One more thing I want to point out about the sons of the prophets, because I don't think that we should miss this part of it. A couple of weeks ago, the last Sunday that I preached, we looked at 1 Kings chapter 19, a story where Elijah is hiding in a cave. His feelings of isolation and loneliness were a major theme of that story. But really, as I, I imagine you've seen throughout the last couple of months, 
Elijah's struggle with loneliness and worry is a major theme that defined his entire life and ministry. He continued to wrestle with and reckon with and wonder if he was the only one who was standing for Yahweh, the only one who was resisting, the only one fighting for good. But then here in 2 Kings 2, on the road to his end, people in support of him and in support of Yahweh are coming out of the woodwork. Not only did God give Elijah a faithful servant to be by his side for the final chapter of his ministry, but Elijah also gets to see evidence of these sons of the prophets, those who have remained faithful. They've never worshipped Baal, but instead they've carried on, just like him, the resistance in some of the most difficult, hard-trenched, Baal-worshipping cities to do so. And I have to imagine, on this journey to his end, that this bolstered Elijah's faith, seeing the sons of the prophet, a a, a physical, an impersonal reminder that yet again, God was still with him. And so I don't think we should miss this either. So our second observation this morning is this, God hasn't left us alone. God hasn't left us alone. And you might feel alone, of course, And if that's you this morning in this space, I don't want to minimize that experience or feeling of loneliness because I'm not sure there's anything worse than that alone feeling that we've all had at one time or another that we all have often. So I don't want to minimize it. But if you've surrendered your life to God, then you're with him and he's with you. He will never leave you alone. Not now and not at the end. It's why the psalmist can say this, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. Death is the enemy. It is brutally ugly. We know that all to be true. Yet God is there. He sees and he welcomes his servants into his wholeness. And not only that, yes, God himself is with us, but we also have his people his community, his family. Elijah didn't know these sons of the prophets, and you may not know the person that's sitting around you this morning, but guess what? You're not alone. This is family. Brothers and sisters in Christ, a spiritual bond that runs deeper than any blood. This is family, but sometimes we don't act like it, I think. A few years ago, my wife Ashley finally got me to watch Gone with the Wind, I know that's the definition of behind the times. Uh, I didn't know very much going in, actually, uh, and I have to say I was super underwhelmed with 1939 filmmaking. Uh, We've come a long way in 70 years, uh, but I also didn't love the story. I watched Rhett and Scarlett's lives fall tragically apart, culminating in Rhett's iconic closing line, frankly, my dear, I don't give a darn or something like that. As as I watched, I grew more and more depressed because the movie, and Rhett and Scarlett's relationship specifically, is a shockingly accurate picture of how easily we can push people away. How we can allow broken relationships to fester so that eventually, in the end, we are left totally and completely isolated. Don't we see this happening in the world around us all the time? But not us. Not God's people. This can't be us. It shouldn't be us. It can't be our story. We can't live that way. We ought not to. And thank God that we don't have to end that way. Because you see, even though it's really difficult 
We all know how hard family can be, blood or spiritual. It can be tough. But even though that's true, God empowers us to live well with one another, to love each other, forgive each other, to be patient and kind, so that none of us have to end alone. So try this. If you knew today was your last, who would you forgive or ask forgiveness from? What's the thing that you've been waiting to say or the thing that you've neglected to do? What would you do with the people closest to you? And what's stopping you? Act today. When the end comes, you don't have to be alone. So now it's time for this story to get weird. Because as everyone has been expecting, Elijah doesn't actually die. He just sort of floats away. Again, I know, strange. But right before his Uber shows up to take him to heaven, Elijah parts the Jordan River with his cloak and asks Elisha what he can do for him. Elisha's response is in verse 9. Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And at first glance, this seems sort of disrespectful. Like, Elijah, let me be twice as strong, twice as important, twice as influential. And can I spit on your grave while I'm doing that? But that's not actually what Elisha is going for. You see, the request for a double portion is in reference to inheritances, And as it makes sense, no heir could possibly receive twice of the estate. But if there are two heirs, then the main heir would receive two-thirds of the estate, while the secondary heir would receive one-third. Or in other words, the main heir would receive a double portion. So Elisha's request is not disrespectful. He's asking to become the successor to Elijah, not just a successor. It's not a show of bravado, it's, it's more humble. I want to be worthy to succeed you. I think I am. I hope I am. And then verses 11 and 12. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Yes, again, very strange. I can't tell you, I don't know why Elijah is taken express to heaven, nor do I know how one gets one of those chariots of golden fire. I think I'd sign up for that if I did. But somehow, spectacular as they are, these verses aren't the main point of the passage. The most important part of the story and the most important observation to take with us this morning is this. God's work will not end with you. God's work will not end with you. You see, the book of Kings is just half over. I know it looks like we're starting a new book in our Bibles, but we just separated them into two books. Really, it's one long narrative, and we're smack dab at the middle of it. And then you have Elisha's question right after Elijah is taken up in verse 14. It's it's brimming with anticipation. Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? Is this going to continue? Where is he? It's the question we've been asking over the last eight weeks. Where is Yahweh? He was clearly, throughout Elijah's ministry, he was with him. Will he now also be with Elisha? And he will. This is what happens as as Elisha takes Elijah's coat. He takes his cloak and he goes back to the Jordan River, reversing what Elijah has just done. He strikes the water, he asks the question, and it parts. Just like for his predecessor, 
Yahweh is with him. He has received the double portion of his spirit. And that's what the author wants us to see. Elijah has met his end, but God's work has not met its end. And so how about us? We are going to end, but God's plan won't in our lives either. The business you're leading, plan to give it away. Your kids, they're going to move out. In all areas of your life, eventually your influence and control will dwindle. Think about the people that you've been sharing your faith with or the causes that you're invested in. One day you are going to be removed from the equation, but God won't be. And instead of depress us, and I, I feel that, I know I do, right? I feel it. But instead of depress us, that should give us hope because the whole world does not rest in our hands. Redemption does not end here. God is still at work in his world, with me or without me. So are we living for something that will outlast us? Are we investing our time, money, work, and love on things that will be here long after we're gone? Are we doing that? I know for me, so often I live for nothing further than the next five minutes and for nothing bigger than my own selfishness. And yet, like Elijah, each and every one of us is invited into something that is actually so much more satisfying, the chance to give ourselves away for something that will outlast us and even outlast our memories. The other night, I started using the New City Catechism with my two-year-old son, Bevan. It's a free iPhone app that you can download. A catechism is a question and answer format for teaching kids, and really teaching anyone, basic theology. The New City Catechism has 52 question and answers, and I really cannot give this a strong enough recommendation. This is a phenomenal resource. The reason that I can use it with my two-year-old is that they've put all of the questions and answers to this really awesome music. He, He loves it. It's part of our bedtime routine. And the first question, we've only done two so far, and we're still kind of going over them slowly. The first question of this catechism is so rich. It's so rich. The question is this. What is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? Because it can't be money or sex or comfort or food or work or control or family even. Our only hope, it can't be in our ability to finish our plans and dreams. It can't be to completely accomplish God's mission and redemption. Our only hope in life and death is this, that we are not our own, but belong to God. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong to God. And we ought to be relieved and grateful that his work does not end with us. Because everything else ends. You will end, I will end. And really what we have here, smack in the middle of the Bible, actually kind of more near the front half of the Bible, this isn't really enough of a story on its own to give us ultimate hope that we need. Because, okay, great for Elijah, right? He gets the chariot, awesome. But what about us? Where's the ultimate hope for us? The ultimate hope is that someday, one day, a true and better Elijah came. One who had has neither a beginning or an end. One who promises to end our weight, end our pain, end our sin. One who brings an end to the end itself, an end to death. Elijah wasn't enough to stand in that gap for Israel. Neither would Elisha or Isaiah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist. There is only one, only one who can stand in the gap between death 
and between life and provide a path through. The one who took our sins and who came out of the grave to make us whole again. For because of Jesus, it's okay our end is coming because he knows how and when and we don't have to be afraid anymore. It's not really the end anyway. And because of Jesus, we never have to be alone. For Jesus was abandoned for our sake so that God can never and will never abandon us. And because of Jesus, we can trust that his work will outlast us. And we can even spend our lives on things that are bigger than ourselves because we know that he's going to make it right and continue that work long after we're gone. For we are not our own, but belong to him. Dana Halstad believed that. I'm guessing you don't know who Dana is. That's okay. Most of us will be forgotten as well. Dana passed away recently, and his funeral is going to be held today at 2 p.m. at our Olathe campus. Even though I'm sure he had no idea what it might look like, Dana trusted. He trusted that God's work could outlast him. Dana was a pastor. Throughout his life, Dana planted four churches in the Kansas City area. After he and his wife Mary Kay retired, they attended our Olathe campus and eventually they were sent out from there to help start our Shawnee Mission campus. Before his retirement, the last church that Dana helped plant was in Olathe, Heritage Community Church. It was a country church, but when the suburbs showed up to Olathe, it dwindled. It wasn't the success that they'd hoped for, And I, as a pastor, I cannot imagine how hard it would be to start a church, give everything to make it work, everything. Dana planted the church, he literally built the building, and then over time, to see it close its doors. But God wasn't done. Because that church is our church, the Olathe campus. We didn't build it, we had no right to it, but in 2006, Dana gave it to us. And we have been the recipients, not just the Olathe campus, but here at Brookside too, and really at each of our campuses, because this, this was the moment that pushed us into multi-site. I'm not sure we ever would have started in Olathe or downtown or here at Brookside or at Shawnee Mission if Dana hadn't done that work for us and gotten us started. And so if Christ's community has meant anything to you, and I know it's meant the absolute world to me, then we owe a debt of gratitude to a man that that most of us didn't know, that we will probably forget, who nevertheless believed in his heart of hearts that God's work could outlast him against all odds, even when it felt like it was over. And just look at what God has done. I praise God for Dana Halstead. Who will praise God for us? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we are not our own, but belong to you through the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus, that he was the true and better Elijah, come to take away our sins and provide a way through the gap between death and life. I pray, Father, that We would not be depressed by our coming ends, but that it would comfort us to know that that we will have eternal life on the other side by trusting in you. I pray, Lord, that that would energize us to invest in work that lasts beyond us, just like Dana Halstead did. I am grateful for him, Lord. I'm grateful for him in my life and for what that meant for Christ's community. 
And I pray for his family today and his friends as they gather to celebrate his life and legacy. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us, not for our honor and glory, but for yours, would have similar lives and legacies when it's all said and done. I pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.